Coming up, we hear from artist Catherine Prescott about her career as a portrait painter and the ways skill, craft, and meaning intersect in art, right after the music. Welcome to the Upwards Podcast, an initiative of Upper House on the campus of University of Wisconsin-Madison. Through conversations with thinkers, scholars, and leaders, we explore the life of the mind and the questions of the soul to enrich our university, our community, and the church. Hello and welcome back. I'm Dan, your host and on staff at Upper House. We're excited to bring you another guest from the art world, one of the regular themes here on the podcast. Like so many of our guests, the one coming up has played a role at a recent Upper House event. A few weeks ago, we hosted Let the Art Speak, a half-day gathering that featured four artists in conversation about creativity and dignity in a variety of artistic mediums. Reviews of the day were sky-high from all those who attended, and all four of those talks are on our YouTube page and linked to in the show notes. In the lead-up to Let the Art Speak, we managed to sit down with one of the featured artists, portrait painter Catherine Prescott. Susan, our senior writer on staff, talked with Catherine about the fascinating world of painting and the intellectual and spiritual tensions that reside in that work. We're excited to share the conversation with you and point you to more of Catherine's work also in the show notes. So a little more about Catherine. Catherine Prescott was born in Washington, D.C., and she was raised in Wisconsin. She's twice been a finalist in the Outwin Buchever Portrait Competition at the National Portrait Gallery and received numerous prizes throughout her career for her painting. In 2016, she was one of nine painters asked by Principal Gallery in Charleston to exhibit portraits of the nine people killed at Emanuel AME Church in Charleston. And the discussion about that portrait and what led up to it is coming up in the conversation with Susan. Catherine's also a teacher, having taught painting and drawing at Messiah College for 20 years, among other teaching appointments. And her art can be found in public collections, including the National Portrait Gallery, the Governor's Offices of the Pennsylvania State Capitol, and Fulton Bank, among other galleries. Before jumping into the conversation, just a friendly reminder to rate our podcast five stars in your favorite podcast app that helps us gain new followers and listeners. You can also leave us a message at podcast at slbrownfoundation.org. And we're particularly interested about who you'd like to hear on the podcast in the future. With that, here's an Upwards conversation with Susan and Catherine Prescott. Catherine, what do you remember about when you first started noticing things in the world and the people around you? What a question. No one's ever asked me that, and I'm very interested in what I'll say. <laughs> so I think that that is so natural to me uh, since we defined it as uh, noticing being just kind of alert to all kinds of things that other people don't talk about, don't say anything about. And so maybe I've always noticed things that I didn't say to anyone because I didn't hear anybody else. So I think I partly assumed that I was noticing things um, in a way that other people did, but they just were silent about it as I was. That's why it's a great question because no one's ever asked me that. And I think I do... I do love to notice. I mean, I, I think it's not just natural to me, but kind of drives me. 
and uh, it's true in portraiture that I am always, always, always noticing other people, what they do with their faces, what they do with their expressions, with their features, why they do this and why they do that. So I'm always looking at what's behind what I see. That's that's probably the constant thing, the constant, um, not just in portraiture, but even in when you say noticing things, I would notice, I mean, I remember as a child noticing how you could make yourself see something from a different viewpoint by closing one eye and having the oh just one eye open and then changing that. So I remember sitting at the dinner table and the candles were lit and so I would be looking at my parents' candles at the dinner table kind of bored with the conversation and closing one eye there and then opening the other one and then closing the other one and opening that one so that I could see on all sides both side two sides of the candle and I could learn it's kind of like an algorithm like you're creating an algorithm um, to imagine what's around the corner. And it's also through, through the noticing of things that I gather information for a portrait. One of the things that, that doesn't work for me is, is watching people give out information because I lose context. I lose the content of what they're saying because I'm so interested in what their face is doing. Or I'll be watching the news and... I'll say, wow, I'm listening to his accent and trying to figure out where the announcer's from and why they say certain things, why they lift their eyebrow when they say certain things. And what, what, it, what does that mean? Is he, is he doubting? Is she, is she, does it make her angry when she has to report this? Or, you know, it's, it's a constant kind of noticing that is just alive in me all the time. The way you were made, apparently, you just are always paying attention. Visual attention. Visual attention. Yeah, it's always about looking. So in your art education, how did you know when you wanted to become an artist and how did you start training? I don't remember when I wasn't an artist, when I didn't make things and when I didn't draw. I remember, I mean, lying on the floor as a child trying to figure out how to make things look like what I saw. So by the time I was six, maybe, I was pretty sure I was going to be an artist. And my parents encouraged me. They said, oh, my goodness, another one <laughs> kind of thing. And so I, they kept a lot of things that I made. Um, I made things for my dollhouse all the time. I made paper dolls all the time. Their clothes and their little shoes and their handbags and figuring out how to make the, st- the hats stay on and it was kind of um, a constant world of using materials to imitate the real world in a way. Um, so I got in trouble at school because I would take all the paper out of the wastebasket that the teacher threw away so that I'd have more stuff to draw on. Why they got me in trouble, why that, why that was a trouble for the teacher, I'm not sure. But <laughs> she, I remember being bawled out for it, and um, especially because I would save like the faded the faded paper that she had up on the bulletin board um, when she took it down you could see where the letters had been and the, the construction paper faded and so you could see so I saved stuff like that I would just take it out of the wastebasket and make something with it so 
Yeah. So then, you know, by the time I was in high school or seventh or eighth grade, maybe, I I was copying photographs of people and to the T. I mean, so trying to get it to uh, constantly asking myself, how does that look like? How did... How do I draw, what do I draw to put down to make it look like that thing in the photograph? So constantly challenging myself to imitate visually. Yeah. And that turned into what I do right now. Yeah. I use photographs, Mm -hmm. although there's more to it than that. Right. There's a lot more to it. I think that's what we'll get to in a little bit when we talk about process I was um, curious about your experience um, going to um, the University of Wisconsin um, to learn about painting. I know you didn't stay here very long, and it was during the 60s or 70s? 66. 66. So you're a young woman. You've been doing um, art all your life and had a passion, apparently, for even then, um, drawing and rendering people, but when you got to the university, what was your experience like? Well, I have to go back a little bit. Maybe a backstory would be that I I was at in college. I was at Colorado College, very good art department there. But, of course, it was 1962 to 66 when I was there, so it was all modernism and even uh, beyond that, very progressive in a very good way. So I learned how to put together a painting. I learned abstraction, which is very important for what I do now. I learned I learned what, how to deal with parts to the whole, to put it quickly. What does that mean, parts to the whole? Well, if you're going to start with a rectangle and put a line on it, now you have two parts. And then what do you do with those two parts? And how do you how do you make things strong in that rectangle how do you how do you how do you use what you have the new thing that you have every time you put something down you have a new challenge because now there are more parts oh that's so fascinating you have to think about which parts need to come and go mm-hmm. and which parts so it makes you think in terms of, oh, this needs to be darker. You're looking at the whole rectangle the whole time. So, and this part is too red. So either I change it or I change what's next to it. So you're always reflecting on your work as you're doing it. Mm-hmm. But not what it means, just what it looks like. Okay, that's interesting. So you had your undergrad experience at Colorado College. Yes, and it was it was i'm very glad for it in order to draw and paint what i was really interested in i did it at night so i would stay up late in the studio and i would get models and i was doing these very big charcoal drawings well over life size charcoal drawings and um and nobody saw them except me so so then when it came time to have our senior show they saw my drawings so I, I mean, I was supposed to be showing paintings, but they saw those drawings and they showed them, the, the faculty. So I, I really liked that a lot, but they weren't portraits. So what I really wanted to do was portraits, and I was starting 
then to do it. I had done them in high school by myself. And so when I got here to to matriculate, I, I spent the summer taking courses. I, I don't, I'm not even sure that I was matriculated in the in the graduate painting school, but I was with the graduate painting professors. And so the first thing I did was a very big self-portrait over life-size again. And they just had a... They just said, you cannot do that. You cannot paint that. You have to quit. This is what you have to do. And so they had me trying to imitate photorealists um, with mundane subject matter. Well, the last thing I wanted to do was mundane. In modernism, portraits had a whole bunch of problems. One of them was that it was bourgeois. It was only for rich people. So if you painted a portrait of someone, it had to be someone who was wealthy. Well, nobody, first of all, nobody who's a modern artist wants to make money because the value in being an artist was to be, well, the joke was to be the genius in the attic who was discovered for his great art, but that's a pejorative way of saying it. But to say that uh, the portraits were were bourgeois was also saying that they were about fashion um, and they were about copying, copying nature or photographs. Equally bad. Photographs were the worst, but copying nature itself was just copying. So any bricklayer can do that. So there were a hierarchy of subject matter and process, both. And um, portraits were, I mean, I think flowers were really bad, but portraits, I think, were even below that. So for me to come to graduate painting at UW in 1966 was out of this world, literally out of, first of all, it wasn't art, and second of all, I wasn't an artist. So how did you react to that? What, what happened next in your life? Well, I, I, uh, I went to New York to be a jazz singer. Oh my goodness, that's <laughs> awesome. <laughs> I'm, I'm a jazz singer. I was a jazz singer. So I went to find an agent in New York. The agent was named Sal Bonafetti. <laughs> and as I remember his name, it was pretty a pretty great name, I thought. Yes, um, it is. But Sal Bonafetti and I didn't ever really, we didn't do anything because I started teaching. I needed a job, and I didn't paint for several years because I was busy with teaching. And uh, and then when we were in Baltimore, um, my husband Ted is a sculptor, and he went to graduate school there. And we got married and went to Baltimore. In Baltimore were the riots, the worst, the worst of it. So 67, 68, 69. It was the worst. And I kind of, I, I, I really fell apart as a teacher. I was, I was teaching in the public schools in Baltimore, and I had these wonderful students. I was teaching in a school that was all, I'd say 99% black students. And the teachers there were 99% white. And they were old. And they were angry. 
and they were mean and they were racist. And I had to support my girls, my students. They blocked the stairways so I couldn't go down. The teachers would stand there and block the stairway so I couldn't get down to my class. Was this during the riots? Yes. Where there were, yes. So in some ways, the tensions of the riots were reflected in the climate at the school oh, in really dramatic in ways. In some way, oh, yes. Yes, Jesse Jackson came in to start the breakfast program um, for the children. I, I mean, it was, it was black power. It was, and I cared about it so much, and my students were deeply affected by the riots and by the racism that they were experiencing in the school. So I tried to help them not go crazy, but they would set wastebaskets on fire in the bathroom and things like that, and I tried to help them not do that, and yet I was just as angry as they were. So there was no way out. There was no way to make it better for them and no way to make it better for me. And I just, I really fell apart. So that's when I started wondering if God was real. Up until that point, had you thought God was real or did you think God wasn't real? Not at all. Okay. So no this, way. But for some reason, going into this dark place, you began to ask that question. Yes. Only God knows why I asked that question. No, what happened was um, friends that we had had in college, uh, a friend that we had in college went to a place called Labrie in Switzerland. He was, his name was Bill, and he went to Europe about the time we got married. And he went to Europe to backpack around and go east religiously, kind of look, look, look to the east for issues of religion. And he was uh, writing us letters all the time. And he was, he was um, clearly, we thought he was going crazy because he started writing to us things like, Jesus is coming back. <laughs> we just thought, okay, it was either, he was either going to go completely schizophrenic or he was going to die because he was a, such a mess and drugs and all that. We were too. He became a Christian at Labrie. It's a study center uh, for, for Christians run by Francis Schaefer at the time. And uh, he married Schaefer's secretary. And they came back to the United States and witnessed to us, called us up and said, we want to get together with you guys. They'd been praying for us. They were praying for us and we were starting to question because they told us later that when they first witnessed to us, it was like picking a ripe apple off a tree. We just, we just fell for it. We had been searching around in Oh, really, you know, scary things. I mean, cult, occult things. I was trying to do astral traveling and stuff like that. We were both kind of seeking, but we were also distressed by the situation in Baltimore and also by, and around. All it sounds around. almost like you were desperately seeking. We were. For some sort I of was. center or yeah. sense of That's right. meaning and purpose. So those things came together. They said, let's get together in New York. And so it was Thanksgiving, and my sister lived in New York as well. 
and she and her husband and a whole lot of friends of theirs who were pretty far out, we used to say. <laughs> they were pretty far out on the on the scale of behavior, risky behavior. And they had a party at Thanksgiving. That is where we met Bill and Norma at this party. They had a sauna in their living room. People were walking around, you know, smoking dope and whatever, all of that. Really risky behavior at a party. It's quite a Thanksgiving. <laughs> yes, it was Thanksgiving. Yes. There was a lot of food and people were just, yeah, wandering around. And in the center of that, we sat next to Bill and Norma, and they told us about God. They told us that God is real. They told us that God would know us if we came to him and other things that made us think, oh, my goodness, this is so, so weird. So we went back to a, a little hotel where we were staying that night. In the middle of the night, he, he woke up from a dream in which he was, he was sitting and there was a man sitting next to him who had his back to him. And at some point, there was conversation going on, and this man turned around and looked right at him. And it was Martin Luther King. And he looked at Ted and he said, God will make you blind so you can see, which scared us to death. We were both terrified. We didn't know what that meant, but we knew it was extremely significant. I can remember just crying and crying and crying and thinking we would never go back to sleep ever again the rest of our lives because something really serious was going on. And at that point, we went back home to Baltimore and started reading our Bibles. And we started, they, Bill and Norma, sent us books of Schaefer's, but they also sent us, they also answered letters that we were writing them, and they told us to read the Bible as though it were true and just see. So I became a Christian first and uh, knelt by the bed, and Ted was reading the New York Times <laughs> in a different room. I knelt by the bed, and I said, I said, God, from now on, you call all the shots. So we immediately, and Ted was two weeks later, he had a similar kind of conversion. I mean, it was instant love. This instant, I remember writing, we had a big mirror in the living room, and I remember writing, I love Jesus. <laughs> Nobody was teaching us anything. We didn't have a church or anything like that. We were just uh, reading books. And, and the Bible. Yeah, and the Bible. We were reading the Bible. I didn't know where to get a Bible. I didn't know you could go to a store and buy a Bible. So I wrote home to my parents to look in the attic because I had gotten a, had a Bible as a kid. It's another story. Yeah, so I, I, they sent it to me. They found it, and they sent it to me. I, who knows what they thought. But right, <laughs> they, right. They were probably thinking, this is definitely a better alternative than what mm, you had been doing. I'm or, not sure. Not sure. No, they, yeah. Yeah, they, were pretty, they were pretty spooked by us. Because it was such a dramatic change. The, the, their understanding of Christianity wasn't anything close to what we were learning. Yes, it was a big change, but also... What we were saying was not like church to them. And I would be the easiest way to say it quickly. But um, I think that they, I mean, they supported us, though. They helped us. And so you had this um, conversion experience. And 
how did that fit into your evolution as an artist? Because you, up to this point, you had been teaching, you had been experiencing really hard trauma through the schools that you were teaching at and, and through the society going through all of these convulsions with racism and assassinations. Um, and you hadn't been painting. And after this conversion, something changed. And, and what was that? Uh, we went to Labrie uh, because it was the only place we knew that... <laughs> In Switzerland. You, In Switzerland. You took off to Switzerland. You, yeah, we sold everything we had. Uh, and we just left the United States, and we didn't know if we'd ever come back, but we needed to get straightened out. We needed to learn who God is. And at that point, I became really interested in drawing and painting again. I started getting interested in it. Schaefer, Schaefer's ministry was to people who uh, had intellectual questions, but who also were a, a lot of people who were artists and, I don't know, philosophers and all kinds of things on that spectrum um, coming there to learn. And he supported, he, belie- he believed that artists, it was important. And um, so I, I think that that affected me. I don't remember, I, I was listening to a lot of tapes about jazz, that's what I was doing thinking of going back to jazz and really loving jazz. And I was also, I just wanted to draw because it was so beautiful there. And I went out in some, in the pastures like Heidi, you know, with little canvases and started painting little, little tiny paintings of flowers. Very, very, very finely, you know, small brushes and just things I'd never done before. I mean, they were just, like I said, flowers were low, portraits were maybe lower, but flowers were next to portraits. So it, was, it had nothing to do with art. As far as I was concerned, I, I wasn't being an artist at all. I just wanted to, I just, it was, I had to paint those things. They were so beautiful. So um, I think I started praying about it. I don't even know if I asked God. I still today want to say it this way, that God said to me, you can paint anything you want. And I don't know if it was words that I heard or I don't think someone else said it to me. It was just an idea that came into my head. A I knew it was idea. true. A powerful idea. I knew I knew that was that was it for me. I just thought, Oh, I can then I know what I'm gonna paint then. If I can paint what I want, I'm on. He set you free. Totally free. He set everything free, everything, everything, heart, soul, body, mind, psychology, spirit, everything was free. The Your vocation. Minute, yes. God, from now on, you call the shots, all the shots. It allowed me to be somebody's in that way that at the time what I understood is that I needed somebody who was better than me, above me, beyond me perfect was working out perfectly, that he was perfect, because then I didn't have to be. I did, then I was free to just be his instead of trying to make myself something better, I guess, something like that. I really love that idea of you 
finding yourself in nature in a way when you're painting these delicate, fine flowers. And if you are able to focus on something like that, there can be such a purity of concentration. I think that a lot of us um, find in moments where we're doing something we love to do. And, um, yeah, and in that time um, that we're spending on those things, that time seems to go by super fast. It's also a, a time of immersion that I think is a gift in a way to us because we're not as distracted. We're not as easily pulled in different directions when we're doing that thing that we are um, good at or gifted for. So I experience it in writing. Like time will go by really fast for me when I'm writing. But when I was reading um, some articles about you to learn more about you before we talk today, um, there was an interesting one where you're asked a question that hinted at painting or creating art as being something like a romantic activity. Like there's just something so beautiful or or creative about it but your response to this question was it's really hard work so it's like both and but you are equipped to do it and and that's what makes it beautiful and absorbing Mm -hmm. equipped to do it but like you say very hard work I think a lot of people assume that that artists are different than other people in that they are talented and that those other people don't have that talent so they can't do it but they just don't have the devotion to do it they don't want i mean you, you, it's desire to do it and it's very um it's not that i'm so talented but i surely am driven to get it right and I think that's another freedom that God gave me is that I I thought, I, I have time to get this right. At Labrie, I had whole days when I could just paint those tiny flowers. They weren't even that good. You know, when I think now, the skills that I have developed, but I developed all my skills from looking at European paintings. Right. You mentioned um, at one point in a conversation we had earlier that you basically taught yourself. I did basically teach myself, but they taught me. The paintings. The painters. Yes. Painters, paintings in museums. Mm -hmm. I learned, I learned everything from looking at paintings and in books, but mostly the real paintings. Yeah, you can look at a book and it's not close to what it's like to stand in front of a a canvas and see the brush strokes and the depth of the color and but I'm and this is again where your noticing comes in, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Because I can imagine you as a person who notices things, paying attention to a lot of things that many of us going to a museum might not even pick up on. Oh, for sure, yeah, and vice versa. You would see things I wouldn't. Well, that's a good point. Yeah. For sure. Based on the paintings I've seen of yours in books and on a screen, I honestly have found them mesmerizing. They are nuanced 
and rich, and there's a lot of shadow, I think, in some of them. Mm-hmm. When you render a person, it's not a straightforward rendering. There's a lot of layers and stories that are hinted at in your renderings, and I, I would like you to describe the way you work and how you do what you do. Well, I photograph. I work almost exclusively from photographs, except for self-portraits. So, um, because nobody will sit still for that long, and also because I'm really, really slow painter, really slow, it'll take me a couple of months to do a nine by six painting. Inches, yeah. Wow. Yeah, or more, three months maybe. Um, So a big painting is a year, a year for sure, yeah. So um, so the photographs are very important for detail. Uh, So if I were photographing you, I would take 100 photographs probably and print them out. Look at them, think about them, remember what it was like to talk to you, remember what what your face does when what what your eyebrows do or your eyelids or the shape of your mouth, even your nostril what all those things how they move around when you're concentrating on certain things or when you're distressed by something or when i I, I notice what's going on what you when i see your face what's happening with all the muscles around around your features we're just talking about face now not to mention hair body posture and all that i'm painting with my my fingers yeah, now as i'm talking you're moving your hands a lot while you yes. talk <laughs> all right so i'm painting in my mind so so it requires the history of watching you as well as the photograph. So if I take 100 photographs and I have 15 of one eye, say, then I have choices when I look at your, when I look at a photograph, I can lay them all out and I can say, that one right there is the, is, has some elements to it that I want for this painting. So now who knows exactly what I want because I don't voice it, you know, but it looks like what I want. That's all I can say. So then I can say, okay, this 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 eye in this photograph is doing something that I want, but not this part of it. It's not light enough or it's squinting a little bit too much or or I know what happens if that eyebrow goes up, it raises it raises the depth of the eyelid. Or I know what happens when she's more interested. I know she tips her head the other way, so I've got the eye, but it's not tipping the right way. So everything that I do needs to have... Everything that I either do or that I do by mistake and that I choose to leave there, all the choices that are there... Um, and that I make is well. First of all, they're between darker, lighter, warmer, cooler colors, greener, redder, more intense, more neutral. All those decisions are going into it as well. That will make it do what I what I want. 
That's all I can say. And so, um, if so, there's there's no little crease. I would never paint all the creases. Only some of them enhance the feeling that I want around that eye. So. I leave things out. The decision to leave things out is just as important as the decision to include things. But I have the information in the in the photograph. But the trouble with photographic information is that it's never everything, nor is it anything but a, just a photograph. So one thing for me that's very important is to think of it as just, oh, it's just a photograph. I don't owe it a darn thing. I don't have to do what it says. I just need something out of this that I want. So I so I would never just paint from one photograph because it doesn't have enough choices. And then when I do make a choice, I'm also making painterly choices like warmer, cooler, darker, lighter to make it stronger or intensify it or to soften it or to or I might leave out an edge or that's the process. It's very detailed. It's very detailed. And and you mentioned that you're a slow painter and you use small brushes as well, I understand, or is that correct? Not at first. I use big brushes to start with because I activate every part of the canvas with an idea of how to put it together. Mm-hmm. Only the word, yeah. Well, no, with just with brushes. I never use a pencil or charcoal or anything ever on a canvas. Just paint from the very beginning. Lines, shapes, colors. And uh, they are either going to be covered over or make themselves useful. So then I just keep going and keep going and keep going until, until what I see on the canvas is what I want. It's not even what I see in my head. I don't know what I see in my head. I don't start with a finished product. So you're kind of working your way into the story or the um, narrative of the person that you're painting. Um, there's a sense I have that the, these subjects you ha- are painting, um, these portraits, I know that you mostly paint people you know. So there's an intimacy there, which I think really shows in the portraits that you paint. There's also a real respect of, for lack of a better word, personhood. But there is something, I think, about the spirit of that person that is somehow heavy in the picture. That it is wrapped in in the picture in some way that is really hard to describe and it's probably the reason it's so easy to spend a lot of time with your work. Now, I know that there are two paintings that you've done that are of people who are not alive or close to you and I wonder if you'd like to talk with us a little bit about those two experiences painting. Only one of them was good. (laughs) Only one of the paintings was good? Mm Mm-hmm. Why? Well, the other ones, the other ones were, it was the people just handed me a photograph oh, and okay. said, 
this principal of the school died and would you do a portrait of him or somebody like that. So I didn't know them at all and I didn't really care about them. I cared about the people that wanted a painting of him. So it didn't help me make contact, I guess you could say connect. So you didn't really, that right, the connection wasn't there for you. And also they didn't have the information to give me. So the one that that is good um, is of Reverend, the Honorable Reverend Clemente C. Clemente Pinckney, and uh, he is the pastor of the Emmanuel A.M.E. Church in Charleston, and he was the first one that was shot of the nine, um, killed by Dylan Roof, the self identified um, white supremacist. So it was a project that we did that I and eight other painters were asked to do for a gallery in South Carolina, um, in Charleston. And they wanted to have us do a portrait, each of us do one of the nine. And I was very fortunate to be invited. I was very thankful and humbled to be given the pastor to paint, I thought at the time, and I still kind of think it's probably true, there couldn't have been a project I cared more about than than him. It was very, very humbling, and immediately I just thought, can I do this? You know, I don't know if I can do I think that about every painting, I, I will say. I think, I think I'm overwhelmed and I'll kind of, snowed by how difficult an enterprise it is to do a painting. To me, when I start, I just think, I, this is beyond me, which is a good thing. I, I don't know how to do this. I just don't know how. So I start, and I keep working. But he, so the other families, uh, the, the, the project was to do the paintings and have it, have them be in an exhibit at the gallery and invite all the people from the church to come and see it and um, then to give those paintings to the families of the people that were murdered. And um, so everyone did that, but my project was of the pastor and his wife, and there were a lot of people that were equally traumatized, but his wife was so traumatized, um, she was hiding under the desk in his office that was right next to where they were praying, where they were shot and killed. Oh, so she was in the building at the time. Oh, she wasn't just in the building. She was, there was just a door between them. That's where his office was, off the prayer room, the room they were praying in. So she heard all of it, and she had her nine-year-old daughter, eight- or nine-year-old daughter, and she was hiding under his desk the whole time, with this little child in her arms. So she never came back to the church. I don't think she moved away. I couldn't make contact with her. All the other painters made contact with their families, and the families gave them all these pictures to work with. These are good portrait painters, all of them. And um, so they all had all this information uh, but when I tried to get the information for Reverend Pinckney, the family 
I mean, I just never heard from her. I didn't get anything. I talked to the lawyer, and the lawyer said, I, she can't talk to you. And of course, he was very famous and well-loved. So there were a lot of photographs of him in the newspapers, n- not since he'd been killed, but before. And, um, you, you know, I mean, it was the New York Times and I guess, I don't know, various various good publications with good photographs, but they all look different. I mean, a photograph is just as varied as a, as a painting, really. And, um, and I couldn't make heads or tails of exactly what he looked like. I certainly didn't know, for example, what was his skin tone. I had no idea. The only thing I really could get out of those pictures is proportion. So I did, I did get that from looking at them. And something about the placement of his features, some details like that. But I didn't know what he looked like. I didn't know enough. And I did watch videos. I watched a lot of videos of him, well, not a lot, but as many as there were, of him speaking in the Senate. Um, He did some, I mean, very, very strong presence in the Senate, in the South Carolina Senate. Certainly, the young, the youngest black senator that was ever in South South Carolina. He's the one who um, got the police to wear body cams. Anyway, he uh, he was beautiful when he was speaking. He was just beautiful. He did have a really rich voice, and I could see him moving something like what I'm saying about if I'm looking at you about your features and the details and everything. I could see that. And so, I mean, I couldn't know. It didn't hold still. So it was in some ways not helpful, but I kind of had an idea who I, who I was painting and who I was, what I was going for. And um, it wasn't like what I saw in the newspapers at all. So I doubted myself. I mean, I didn't know if I got even close, you know. But I just prayed a lot and cried while I was painting, but we all cried. One of the artists didn't come to the show. He brought sent the painting, but he didn't come because he said, I'll just cry the whole time. I can't come. We were all very deeply moved, of course, by the whole thing and the honor of painting them. So I, I did this painting, and uh, I just kept painting and painting until I saw what I thought he was, who I thought he was. And I just had to take it there. And I knew it was a good painting, which is another miracle. <laughs> it was, I, th- I thought it was a good painting. So I just took it, and I thought, well, it's probably, it's probably as close as what everybody else got with all the family photos, because family photos aren't that great either, you know. So... I took it there, and, and um, at first at the show, um, oh, eight or nine or ten people came in, and then we saw, we saw that they were on their phones, and they were telling people, "Come and look at this." I did meet people at the show that knew him, that weren't in his family, and one of them was the communications director at the church, and her daughter. The daughter, her, 
my friend's daughter, did it look like him? And she said, well, she said, I was supposed to be there that night. And at the last minute, I decided not to go to the prayer meeting. And I would have been there. And I loved him so much, I hated to miss even one prayer meeting. He was so wonderful, and he had this beautiful voice, and everybody loved being around him, you know. And I said, well, I just got on my nerve. I said, does this look like him? And she just gave a big nod, a big nod, a very deep nod, and said yes. That was a lot of work for you. Well, they all are. They <laughs> yeah. all are. If you if you can't learn something from doing something, then really, what are you doing with your time? That's half a quote uh, from a friend of mine that I painted, who's an artist. And I said to her, "Is Lois Dodd? She's a New York painter. That's kind of uh, she goes before me. Let's put it that way. She and I have learned so much from her. And, and I said to her one time." Well, Lois, sometimes I get really discouraged about the enterprise of being an artist. We were talking about that. And she said, yeah, but when you think about what other people do with their time. Yeah, I've always wondered at how hard it is to be an artist. I have artist friends, and they're never paid the value of their work. You never make up nearly as much financially as the time you spend on something so I can't imagine, to be honest. You have to do it because you're passionate about it or feel driven to do it. And teach. You also had done a painting documenting the people who you said were your instructors. Mm-hmm. Why don't you describe that for us for a few minutes? Well, that, that was, a, a, I called it um, founders. They were the founders of my work. And uh, they were all deceased when I did the painting. And they were, uh, so I painted from photographs of them. And there were, I think, 15 of them. So I remember Matisse, and I remember Alice Neal, and I remember uh, Fairfield Porter, and I remember, it's been quite a while since I've looked at it. I, I think about... 14 or 15 different artists um, that I had studied looking at their work. And I, I'm, by study, I mean making copies, um, sometimes having a, a book of their work open while I was painting, so just so I could stick with what I wanted to learn from it and not veer off and just fight it, fight, you know, fight for it, fight for what I wanted to learn. So... You study that like that, and then you love them. I love them. So I wanted to paint them. So And, and they're all sitting uh, together or standing in a group in this portrait, the founders. It's a very big, I'd say, seven, seven by six feet or something like that. And uh, so the ones in the front are over life size, and the ones in the back are are smaller. So Vermeer was in there. There aren't any pictures of Vermeer. So I did a painting of one of his, I, I copied one of his paintings a, that's an, of an artist. 
So that's the closest I could get to. Is that the guy with a black hat? Yes. Yeah, I know that one. That one, All right. yes. So that I represented them one way or another. And uh, and in the center, I, I had... Um, so these are all artists that have influenced me. In the center, I placed Christ in the form of an icon. I copied an icon and painted it what a friend of mine said, you painted that so lovingly because it was so the very best I could give it, you know. Well, everything is, but I mean, it's. I made the most of every color and every line and every, you know, I got it as close as close to right to the icon as I could get. Because there's a love relationship there. There's a love relationship and because he's he's the main founder and the original artist the original do you ever feel like you are accompanied spiritually as you paint do you or is it all just work or do you have these moments where you feel like you are loved as Catherine and loved because you do beautiful work just as a child of God do you ever get that sense I I don't know that there's a time when I don't have that sense. Oh, so thank you so much. Thank you so much, Susan. This is really, really nice. The Upwards podcast is supported by the Stephen and Laurel Brown Foundation. It is produced at Upper House in Madison, Wisconsin. Music by Micah Bear, audio engineering by Andy Johnson, and graphic design by Madeline Ramsey. Follow us on social media, including Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn with the handle at Upper House UW.